Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Stocks extending their record highs with some big names once again on the move. We'll discuss and debate how to play the rally with the investment committee. Joining me for the hour today, everybody here at Post 9, Joe Turnover, Anastasia Amoroso, Jason Snipe, Jim Labenthal. Let's take you to the markets. We are in the green across the board. Dow tops 38,000 for the first time ever. Jim Labenthal, you say this is the moment of truth for the rotation argument because what looked like it was going to have some staying power at the end of 23 hasn't really worked out that well so far in 24. That's exactly right, Scott. Um, you know, and, and let me start by saying, all right, we're at an all-time high, but I don't feel anybody, including myself, that's going to do a Jason Kelsey here and rip off their shirt to celebrate their brother's touchdown. It just doesn't feel that way. Now, why is that? Why is that is because the equal weight, the small caps, have not participated year to date. So, yes, you've got a new high, but it's the same MAG-7 that's leading the way. In order for that to broaden out, this is the moment of truth. Earnings need to prove that the broadening of the rally is deserved. The broadening of the rally is not going to happen on rate cuts and the debate whether it's six, five, four, or three. That's not what's going to broaden the rally. Earnings are going to broaden the rally. And if you don't get them, then this new high feels a lot like winning a football game because your opponent missed a last-minute field goal wide right. If you happen to be overexposed to cyclical names, yeah. it feels like yeah. that. If you, you know, dance with Ubrunya and you're in these mega cap names, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling good because this is exactly how I thought it was going to play out. NASDAQ up 2.5% on the year, Russell down 2.5%. Right. Well, so far, you look at the market performance and you say, well, there's no need to rotate. You're right back to the playbook of 2023. But I'm with Jim. I think earnings do need to broaden out, and I think that's what's going to start to happen. I mean, part of the reason why the other parts of the market did not hold up well last week was because financials did not deliver on earnings. And if you look, if you look at the earnings reports, the start of the earnings season is weak. We now have a pretty significant downside surprise, and so I think that's why this rally couldn't run out. But I am optimistic. It's not just about the financials, which I kind of put to the side. It's about more and more sectors and more and more companies reporting in the next couple of weeks. And Scott, what I say is the bar is set low for earnings across the board outside of financials. For example, typically you do cut back earnings estimates by about three or four percentage points leading up to the start of the quarter. This time we cut them back by 6.8%. So I think the bar is low. And in the next couple of weeks, we've got communication services, consumer discretionary tech sectors that will be reporting. And they're not reporting a negative 18 percent earnings decline like we see for financials, but a positive 18 uh, or in some cases, 41 percent. We stay with this idea that we're going to get this rotation or, or at what point do we abandon ship on that? It's, a, it's an important question to ask. I think, you know, I think couple points that were already made in terms of the beat rate. So the beat rate, earnings haven't been great. There's only been a 62% beat rate. The average is 77%. Um, We do need the other 493 493 companies of the S&P to participate and and really start to grow. Semis are up 7%, right, year to date. 
a lot of that is on the back of some of the, the Taiwan Semi guide and report. That's so right. for me, um, yes, we, we going forward, we have 15 percent of the S&P to report this week. Um, we'll see how that how that develops, but we absolutely need to see broader participation. Now, you've been looking at this from the beginning yes. of the year, <clears throat> yes. wondering if all of this talk about broadening is just talk and it's not going to actually happen. Okay, so compare S&P value versus S&P growth on earnings expectations. S&P value doesn't see double-digit year-on-year revenue growth until the end of 2024 at best. S&P growth... Double-digit growth is there. It's evident. And, in fact, that double-digit growth goes into the 20 to 25 to 30% range. So that's where the clear growth is. I think really what, what, what shook that narrative was the backup in yields. The backup in yields drove a lot of capital back into the quality factor, drove capital back towards yeah, right. the mega caps. And you would have to see, I think, a, a, a reversal. You would have to see yields return, in particular the 10-year. You've got to get that 10-year back to down to about three and three quarters to ignite some of the Q4 type of price action. Well, see, that's why, you know, Jan Hatzius over at Goldman says, first cut, to your point, is happening in March. Mm-hmm. David Costin there says lower rates are going to just continue to fuel this appetite for growth stocks. Yeah, I think they are. And the point that David actually specifically makes that it's not just growth stocks, but stocks can continue to grow in terms of their return on equity and can continue to grow into their profitability. When you are in an environment where you are uncertain where the economy is headed, you go to where the highest profit margins are. And when you have this perceived safety of margins, and that's got why people flock to the Magnificent Seven. But now, if you think we might got might have Fed easing on the table, then you start going to stocks uh, that may have higher leverage, have lower growth today, but higher expected growth in the future. So that's David point, David's point. I'm sympathetic to that. And we've been looking at the Goldman Sachs unprofitable tech basket, which so far is down 15% for the year. But I think at some point that catch-up trade is going to start working again. Apple remains the, the place to look. So three downgrades in three the downgrades. last two, three weeks. Yes. Do you remember, you know, prior to this string of downgrades, you know, a few months ago, Apple got downgraded and we joked on the show like, okay, that marked the near term bottom for that one. Yes. And then, you know, uh, Apple comes roaring back off of that downgrade. Then it gets these three downgrades and stocks looking dicey. Technically, it's kind of messed up. The last one was Redburn Atlantic downgrading it to neutral. What happens from there? Stocks pushing back towards 200. Mark the bottom once again. It's remarkable because if you look at the S&P 500 year to date, which I did this morning, 71% of the S&P 500 is underperforming the overall performance year to date for the S&P. And going beyond that, actually 61% of the stocks in the S&P 500 coming into this morning were actually negative on the year. So you take a stock like Apple and you try to insert this negative sentiment towards it in the face of very, very strong fundamentals and strong fundamentals, not just from the standpoint of earnings, which have been relatively flat, but just the ability to buy back their own stock. And what's interesting about the rally over the last several days is, remember, it's happening at a time we're in a blackout period for corporations to buy back their stock, which mm-hmm. is another compelling case. But I think Apple is just a classic example of not trying to push against the overall momentum in the market. And the momentum in the market is incredibly strong. And the momentum in the market is being captured by a lot of non-discretionary funds. And I really want to highlight that because I don't think people understand 
how the market structure has changed so dramatically to where now you have algorithms, you have quant funds, and you have non-discretionary capital that really is the overwhelming driver of where the market goes. And I think Apple is a clear example of being a beneficiary of that type of non-discretionary momentum. You could make the argument, Jason, that you know the time to be negative Apple was when it was going to head down into the 160s, like the high 160s is where it got back to. Now it's it's rallying back once again, and we have the parade of downgrades in the last couple of weeks. Today, not not so much. Bernstein reiterates it as market perform. Bank of America says AI could drive Apple to outperform in 2024. Stronger upgrade cycle coming driven by the need for the latest hardware to enable generative AI features. So that's their call there. Yeah, so I, I think for me, I mean, you, you pointed it out, Scott, I mean, three up, three downgrades, right? And then you see, obviously, the price action that we saw. It's rare that you see one downgrade, okay? And you this got span it. of a week, you got from, it. From, or eight days, from January 2nd to January 10th, you got three. A hundred percent. And then they lose the position as the largest company in the world, right? And then Microsoft obviously takes the lead, which obviously Microsoft's price action has been strong. Um, but again, I think, I think for me, as it relates to Apple, you know, a couple weeks ago is a source of funds. You know, you get the upgrade and, you know, there's no longer concern about the multiple 29 times forward. Foxconn is no longer an issue. Supply chains upgrade cycle. We hear about the glasses, 180,000 pre-orders sold. Right. So I think it's just benefiting from the momentum in the tech space as rates pull back. Got the watch drama. You have some potential regulatory issues, DOJ, all these reports coming out. It's like, OK, the, the, the stock doesn't seem to uh, pay much attention to it over the last you know, several days, looking ahead probably to earnings and figuring that the, the negative part of the story is troughed. Three I, consecutive quarters of negative revenue mm-hmm. growth, that's in the mm-hmm. rear view. Mm-hmm. Smartphone market was weak globally, that's gonna be troughing as well. Look, I'm not a big believer in there's a huge catalyst out there to move Apple higher. Okay, I know some people are putting the Vision Wear uh, goggles out there as the catalyst. That's fine. You can make a market on anything you want to. I just don't believe that. I think this is more, and I'm going at you, Joe, with this. This is more going to respond to the market overall. If animal spirits return and people are coming back to the market right now, just by definition, those non-discretionary buyers that you're talking about have to go to Apple. If you're anywhere exposed to the S&P 500 or the triple Qs. Now, what I think is interesting here, and I'm going to dovetail to something you said about the algorithms. Because I said this to you on the air yesterday in a rhetorical or last week, and I didn't quite get an answer. What happens? We were talking about interest rates. You were talking about interest rates a second ago. What happens when the yield curve all of a sudden re, uh, disinverts? I think those algos, just to answer the question, are now going to pile on. And I think that's going to happen. So I hear you on, hey, we'd like to have the 10-year at three and three quarters, but I don't think so. I think you want to get it higher. Maybe the two-year comes off a little bit, but when that yield curve uninverts, I think the algos are going to pile on. It's going to benefit Apple, it's going to benefit everybody in the market. Let me ask you all this, um, because Friday's big story that we did was Stephanie Link selling Meta, right? She looks at um, the incredible price appreciation, Joe, of a stock like that, and it's like, look, I I love it. It's just, I'd be crazy not to take some profits just given what the move's been. So I'm like, well, what about other big winners from November 1st that you guys are all in? CrowdStrike's up 70% since November 1st. Uber's up 50%. There are other names on the list, which we'll get to as well. But these are, you know, growth names which have ripped. Well, you never, you, you never say never in terms of looking at a particular position, realizing that it's been a significant con, uh, contributor 
to your portfolio and saying, okay, do I need to reduce the allocation to this individual equity to manage the risk. So there's always that possibility that exists. In the case of Uber, that's in fact what I did towards the end of 2023. I paired back because I had a significant gain in the stock. I paired back the holding. Uh, in the case of CrowdStrike, there's a very strong uh, thesis, a fundamental thesis and a tailwind surrounding cybersecurity. And I think that's well entrenched. It's clearly so far been a dominant theme in 2024. And what would be the motivating factor for me to consider reducing the holding in CrowdStrike is to see a reversal of that trend, both in terms of the technicals themselves, mm -hmm. but really in fundamentals, really beginning to hear the earnings story looking like it's decelerating. And if you do get that type of evidence, then yeah, you have to pair back the position. But until it does that, I'm gonna stay with it. Jimmy's stocks are right in the wheelhouse of his argument slash concern about the broadening of the market because the cyclical names that he's betting big on, like. You know, Greenbrier, for example, is up 30% since November 1st. GM is up 27%. You know, not much news. Thermo Fisher's up 25%. I mean, if, if your test, so to speak, right, calling this a, a, a test for these stocks, if that fails, what do you do with these names? I think you got to trim them. Um, I mean, this this is the moment of truth to go back to where we started this. Now, Greenbrier, I'll just point out, they're on an off cycle as far as when their calendar year ends. So they reported a few weeks ago. Pretty good earnings report, by the way. Now, that's a look, it's a small cap stock. It makes rail cars. Rail cars, that's pretty cyclical, okay? So that's a good indication, but again, it's a small cap. You can't, you can't you know, derive from that that the overall cyclical economy is doing well, as much as I may want to. GM, on the other hand, is a major moment of truth. It's up, whatever you said, 27%. A lot of that, I think, is the accelerated share repurchase where they're buying back about 20% of the company. Now, they wouldn't be doing that if they didn't feel good about their prospects, but those prospects need to shine through, not just in the fourth quarter reports, but the guidance going forward. The stock is still ridiculously cheap. It's less than five times earnings. So, you know, if I'm right, and I think I am about the broadening of the economy, excuse me, the broadening of the rally on the back of economic strength, GM will do well. Uh, Thermo Fisher, you know, I would say this is more of a sector call. I think a lot of us have talked about healthcare being this year being the year for healthcare. It was a terrible year last year. Thermo Fisher is one of the highest quality companies in the healthcare sector. A little pricey, I'll admit that. But let's see if this near-term momentum can run along with the sector as people, as sentiment comes back to it. All right. So we mentioned what Apple's doing, pushing back towards uh, 200 bucks. Uh, NVIDIA is hitting an all-time high because chips have been crushing it. Best sector this year, semiconductors. That, after having their best year, the SMH at least, in 20 years last year. Christina Partsinevelos joins us now um, because KeyBank reiterates NVIDIA is overweight. You do have some other calls in the space, but your beat um, has been going crazy. I know, and I just happened to take a few days off during all of this. But let's start with AMD because it seems like it's a little bit less optimistic. Analysts at Northland Capital are saying, hold your horses on AI. Yes, it's big, but it's not as big as investors are thinking, which is why they are downgrading AMD on valuation to a, quote, heck if we know rating. They believe right now AMD's AI earnings potential is just too inflated at the moment. That's how you can see shares are down slightly, but not the case for NVIDIA. That stock is up, what, 25% year to date after 200 
140% ride last year. Speaking of NVIDIA, NVIDIA CEO Jensen Wong just made his first visit to China in four years, just over the weekend. It's unclear who he met, but the visit does highlight NVIDIA's concerns about U.S. chip restrictions and this growing competition from local alternatives like Huawei. He also visited Taiwan to meet with Taiwan Semiconductor to secure production capacity for its current upcoming, its current and upcoming AI chips. But not everyone thinks NVIDIA is number one for 2024. Morgan Stanley is replacing NVIDIA with Western Digital as its top pick with a new price target of 73 bucks, and that's why it's pushing shares higher right now, over 4%. And the analyst Joe Moore says the stock is dirt cheap and NAND prices, which is really just the memory is not associated with AI, so uh, just think of it as a separate type of memory. And he said those prices are ripping higher. And then the, the major catalyst, too, is in the second half of this year, Western Digital will separate its NAND business from its hard disk drive, aka the storage business, which should unlock additional value. So that's why they're upgrading uh, Western Digital and uh, in replacing it instead of NVIDIA. Jason, you want to chat about what's been going on with, with NVIDIA <clears throat> of late? Um, yeah. I mean, I remember uh, this stock has just been incredible. You pick your superlative. I, I, right. you know, you, right. you're the shareholder in it. You yeah. tell me how you're feeling about this move and whether you think it's a little too much, whether it's yeah. completely justified. Yeah. What do every, you say? Every, every time I say that, it keeps going higher, right? So the stock, to Christina's point, up 240% last year, 20, 20 plus percent this year. You know, think about the, think about the meta move. 300,000 chips that they bought, mm -hmm. right? So the demand is extremely robust. 300,000 H100s, right? And they and they're still innovating. They're on top of that build. So, for me, the semi space, the cyclical space, they call them the new transports. All these things that we've talked about forever. Um, it's it's very much in play, and I and I continue to think there's upside momentum there. Yeah, Joe. The concern, I, look, NVIDIA is, is nothing more than a reflection of what Jimmy's talking about with the animal spirits, a strong positive momentum, and really the, the desire for ownership of quality within the market. We all know where AI is. The setup for the semis this week is somewhat concerning when you think about, well, where do we kick off semi earnings? We've got Texas Instruments, and then we'll hear from Intel. Texas Instruments has had five quarters of struggles. Uh, you bounced weak, on that one too, right? I did, I did. Uh, weak, weak demand for industrial equipment, analog's gonna be down double digits once again. So the setup for semis this week can be a little bit uh, complicated when you're hearing some of the fundamental stories that certainly aren't gonna sound as good well, as what you hear from AI, AMD, and NVIDIA. That's a good distinction, Christina, isn't it? The, the tale of two chip kind of segments, whether it's on semi, Texas Instruments, NXPI versus the others that are getting all the limelight. Yeah, and it's a great point by Joe, just because uh, auto sector is also a concern, so that's weighed on on semi and a few other uh, like NXPI. Texas Instrument is exposed to EVs, but not so much. They're more diversified, so it seems like some analysts are saying, hey, the bottom may have hit four Texas Instruments, despite you know the five quarters of potential weakness. There's still some mixed reviews on Intel, but if I may just bring it back to NVIDIA, the, the thesis that uh, Northland Capital had on AMD, they are arguing that there's there's a lot of stockpiling happening happening with these AI chips. China is going to slow down its demand in Q3 once they, you know, they buy all their chips and start using alternatives. So I wonder why that thesis isn't used for Nvidia. Let's say, you know, beyond the second half of this year, and why there isn't maybe more concern that this may taper off uh, by the end of 2024. 
well, we'll, we'll have to wait and see what happens with their, their guidance and what the analyst community has to say about it. Christina, thank you. I appreciate it, Christina Partzinellis. It's a perfect segue to, you know, you talk about stocks going wild and some of these names that have, have gone crazy. We just got uh, Greenlight Capital's uh, annual uh, letter to investors, uh, David Einhorn, of course, who says that they returned 22.1% last year net of fees. And there's a line in here towards the top that I think sets up this conversation pretty well. 2023, he says, was a very good year for the partnerships. It had been tracking towards a great year until the last couple of months when the market took off and most of our short book performed poorly. Bubble-like conditions returned for the most speculative stocks and a handful of our shorts went parabolic. I mean, look, he's known as, as somebody who certainly wasn't trying to, you know, jump on these uh, crazy growth stocks. He has always had, or at least for the last at least handful of years, this so-called bubble basket of names um, that you know went against him, and then for him when they you know had a, had a really rough year a year ago. So he talks about these speculative stocks going parabolic. Ed Yardeni has a note, guys, out today in which he talks about an exuberant melt-up phase. Um, talking about which already might be underway and might become irrational. So two smart market watchers, one great overall market participant throughout the years in, uh, in David Einhorn, went through a rough patch but has, has bounced back from that. What do we make, Anastasia, of, of some of this commentary? Speculative stocks? Even, you know, Edgar Denny, who's as bullish as anybody on this market, yeah. talking about an exuberant melt-up. I talk about Apple coming back towards two. I talk about NVIDIA ripping higher among these other semiconductor names. Yeah, I mean, if there's nothing to get in the way of the exuberance, why can't the market continue to roll on? And when I think about the setup right now, we talked about earnings that maybe started on a week uh, basis, but I think that broadens out and earnings can be a catalyst for markets. You know, then we talk about elections. People maybe sort of start to worry about it. But guess what? Stocks actually typically go up in election years uh, more often than not, 85 percent of the time. And then you talk about Fed easing. You know, whether we want to debate whether it's March or May or June, the bias for the Fed right now is to ease policy. So I call it the three E's, the elections, the earnings, the easing. I think all of that right now is on the side of the market. And there was an interesting note, uh, Scott, today from uh, Tony Pascarello, where he talked about that the Fed is now talking about cutting rates, but investors are also, also starting to think about what happens with tax cuts from the Trump era and whether they start to get extended. So I think for now, the market has a lot to support it. You know, one of, one of these stocks we would have said fits right into this basket over the years uh, was Netflix, right? And, um, you know, Jason, you own it. Yeah. Remember the stock was at 700, had this, you know, huge decline down to, what, four, less, less than that? Yep. Well, it's back towards five, okay? And it reports earnings tomorrow, which has always been a key moment for the FANG stocks. Julia Borston joins us now with what the setup looks like. Hey, Julia. Well, Scott, Netflix is expected to deliver accelerating revenue growth and subscriber additions pretty much in line with last quarter's surprise beat. That's nearly 9 million. That's how many new subscribers analysts are projecting for Q4. That would bring Netflix's paid memberships to 256 million. Now, the other key number to watch is 11%. That's the accelerating revenue growth that Netflix forecasts for the quarter. 
Both numbers would reflect success converting freeloaders to paid subscribers as well as advertising upside after Netflix announced 23 million ad-supported subscribers. They announced that just earlier this month. As rival streamers focus on profitability, Netflix's lead is seen as giving it an even greater advantage to license others' content and ultimately spend less on content. Now, despite the 36% run-up in Netflix shares since its last earnings, 60% of analysts have a buy rating, 34% have a hold, and only 6% have a sell. Scott? All right, Julia, thanks so much. That's Julia Borson. She'll, of course, be all over the network tomorrow as we look ahead to that, and then we report the earnings in, in, in OT. So, Mark Mahaney, speaking of what Julie was saying, uh, still some wind left in the sales, yep. he says. What do you think? I think so. I think, Scott, for me, as it, as it relates, streaming is always on the docket, and it relates to all these players, right? Um, and streaming has been slowing some. Nine million is a very solid number, right? Um, and when I think about how they're monetizing that existing base, you know, we talked about 23 million ad-supported tier new members, right? So these are folks that maybe are in the space where we're sharing some, somebody else's um, subscription, and then you're talking about the password share. So I think um, there is continued upside on the existing base. The free cash flow continues to grow. I think the one concern for me, though, is what happened with the strike. There's not a lot of new releases. The content library is strong, but there's not a lot of new releases this year. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, so the momentum is clearly back at Netflix, but this is a quarter where I don't know if it's as much the technicals as the fundamentals that's going to drive the direction. I think what's going to be important is the operating margin, returning the operating margin back into the mid-20s, and then also gaining an understanding coming off the Hollywood strike, which ended in the early weeks of October. Okay, what's the cost effect now on Netflix yep. as we move forward? Because the writers obviously uh, are going to be receiving more um, and that's going to weigh on those margins themselves. So I, I think that fundamental element is going to be really important to understand as they give us uh, a little bit of a road back into 2024. All right, we got a lot of other names on the earnings list uh, for this week, and we'll try and get through those before the end of the show today because we do have a lot of ownership uh, on the desk. So I'm going to put that aside. We'll take a quick break. We do have more stocks on the move that the committee owns. We're going to talk trades on City and DR Horton, Lulu, and more. We'll do it next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started.
All right, we're back. Let's hit some com uh, committee names that are on the move today. Uh, let's talk city, Jimmy, okay? Uh, Warren Buffett apparently telling Jane Frazier, the CEO, to continue with the overhaul. Uh, made that case over a lunch meeting, according to reports. You've been making that case uh, during this lunch timing uh, for weeks, right? <laughs> for, for some reason, I think uh, St. Warren has a, uh, a bigger voice than mine. It's okay. Uh, it's, look, it's nice to hear. It's not the thesis for being in the stock that uh, Warren Buffett is in it, but it certainly helps. I agree. Of course I agree. Look, I, I think Jane Frazier, who's been at this for about three years as the CEO of Citigroup, um, has been doing all the right things. First, rationalizing the international businesses. And by the way, on that note, second half of this year, it looks like they're going to spin out the Banamex operation. That's a huge move, okay? That simplifies the structure of the business. Um, then domestically, doing things like getting rid of distressed debt and municipal bond businesses, those are hard decisions to make, all right? That's what you want a CEO to do, is make hard decisions, but ones that benefit the remaining businesses and shareholders. This all comes down to cost cuts and making the business simpler to, to understand, both for shareholders and for regulators, by the way. So I, Warren agrees. Okay, Jason Snipe, let's talk some home improvement. Oppenheimer yep. today cuts both Home Depot and Lowe's. Uh, they take it off outperform. Right. You got Lowe's, okay, yeah. so they take the price target down to 230 from 275. It seems to be a near-term tactic, more tactical call. They're taking a more cautious stance towards home improvement retail. What do you make of this call? Yeah, and I think the call is is pretty much just saying, hey, listen, there might be a better entry point later on down the road. You agree with that? Point. I, I, I think it's it's possible. I don't know. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I think part of part of the run. Listen, it's been up, it's up 15 percent in the last three months. I think part of it is policy. I really like Marvin Ellison. I like what he's done with selling the Canadian business. I think I think their operational margins continue to grow, and they're focusing on profitability. Um, but you know, when inventories are really low, like they are. Uh, you know, these home improvement stocks can struggle, but I still think, I still like this one in this space. So what about the builders, Joe? As DR Horton today gets downgraded over at Seaport, um, earnings are tomorrow morning before the bell. They also reiterate a buy on NVR. That's at a 52-week high today. I ask you because DR is in the Joe T and NVR is in the Joe T as well. It, it, it sure is at a 52-week high. And look, you, you can't play both sides of the fence on this show. Um, a few weeks back, I was talking about the distance between price and the 200-day moving average and how in a lot of the uh, semiconductors names, it had gotten extreme towards 25 to 30%. And that's the case for the home builders, okay? Let, let's be candid about it. When you look at DR Horton, you're nearly 30% with price above the 200-day moving average. So could you have a technical correction? Absolutely you can. What do you do with the information I'm giving you? You set the expectation. I don't think you do anything with your position because the fundamental conditions that are in place are favorable for the home builders. And the setup for 2024, if the economy is able to achieve the soft landing, if the Federal Reserve begins to cut rates, you're going to see a frozen residential real estate market begin to thaw out. And that's going to fundamentally benefit these companies. So be prepared, set the expectation you get a technical pullback. But fundamentally, I'm staying in these names. So what about Lulu, which got downgraded today? The price target 500. The stock had a great run as we've been debating Lulu's place in your portfolio versus a Nike, mm -hmm. um, which have been going in opposite directions. So what do we do here? Okay, so I, I read the note rather extensively and they made the valuation argument. And what puzzled me about what they were citing is, yes, they said Adidas offers a better valuation, but they didn't move on Nike. 
And, and if you believe you've got this rich valuation in Lululemon, and you're suggesting that you want to look for valuation opportunities somewhere else, well, there's Nike, which obviously is, is trading at a significant dif- discount. Yeah, yes, for, for a reason. For, they, for they, a reason, because they, they don't have the, the growth. Argument. But not only that, but now they don't know what to do with it, it because the stock had this massive ramp into their earnings, which were a massive disappointment. So there's where the valuation argument falls. And that's where the valuation argument falls, because what you have in the case of Lulu is you have strong brand momentum, you have strong revenue growth, and within the note, they're talking about impending, impending, moderating growth. Okay, impending means may or may not happen. I'm not moving out of my position because something's impending. Just on Nike real quick, I mean, I I got lucky with where I entered it uh, two quarters ago and sold it before this bad quarter that they reported. But it's on my watch list, right? This thing looks like it's going to break down below 100. And if it does, I think it's going to go test those 52-week lows. Um, Now, I'm saying all that because at some point it does become a buying opportunity. I read the articles that they've lost their mojo. What are they doing with Tiger Woods, all that sort of stuff? It's Nike, okay? It's Nike. This gets in the low 90s. I think you're supposed to pick it up. All right, Pippa Stevens has the headlines for us. Hi, Pippa. Hey, Scott. Well, President Biden releasing a statement on the deaths of the two Navy SEALs who were lost at sea during a mission off the coast of East Africa last week. U.S. Central Command confirmed their deaths today after a 10-day search. The president wrote that the SEALs represented the very best of the country who pledged their lives to protect their fellow citizens and that his heart goes out to all who grieve these two brave Americans. Cargo theft has more than doubled in a year, according to threat prevention company CargoNet, which says nearly $130 million worth of goods were stolen last year. CargoNet ranks California, Texas and Florida as the three top spots for theft. And for the first time in 33 years, an amateur has beaten the pros at a PGA event. Nick Dunlap, a student at the University of Alabama, won the American Express tournament in La Quinta, California, with one stroke on Sunday. Dunlap is the first amateur to win since Phil Mickelson in 1991, but unfortunately won't be able to accept the $1.5 million prize because of his amateur status. And of course, Scott, great coverage from you on the ground last week. Oh, Pips, thanks. It looks like he has uh, some big paychecks, though, in his future <laughs> if he keeps playing like that. Mm-hmm. Pips Stevens, thank you. All right, coming up, we're searching for opportunities outside the U.S. Bob Pisani has that in today's ETF Edge when we come back. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. We are back on the half. Let's get now to Bob Pisani with today's ETF Edge. Hey, Bob. Hey, Scotty. The U.S. stock market is at new highs, but international flows are all over the place. There's been huge inflows into India and Japan, which has reinvigorated overseas investing. But China flows are flat to down as that market hits multi-year lows here. Here to make sense of it all, Dave Mann. He's the global head of product and capital markets at Franklin Templeton. Dave, you oversee Franklin's ETF business. It's a big one. It includes India, Japan, China ETFs. Let's talk India and Japan. Why is India and Japan so hot right now with international investors? 
Uh, sure. Thanks, Bob. Um, yeah, India was one of our leading asset gatherers last year. Um, FLIN's the ticker. Uh, you know, the growth story's been wonderful there. Uh, you know, also interesting to look at it from a, you know, it's a it's a democracy. I kind of call it a noisy democracy when when comparing it to something like China. So, uh, strong growth story, strong middle class. Um, it's been an interesting one, especially compared to something like China from an emerging markets perspective. And Japan. Yeah, Japan has also been a strong one. That's always been an interesting one when we look at our, um, you know, sort of our international lineup. And, and, you know, last year in the U.S., about half of flows were into U.S. equities, some, uh, half were not equities. Japan's always been that sort of its own region and, um, you know, part currency, part, um, you know, the, the Japanese central bank and what they're going to do. So strong flows into that one as well. So at the same time, I'm watching China. The, the inflows have been flat. To some of them are seeing notable outflows. Hong Kong and the mainland China indexes hit multi-year lows. The Shanghai and Shenzhen indexes, they've gone nowhere. They, 2007 levels is where we're at right now. You, so your China ETFs have all the big names. I, I see Tencent, Alibaba, Baidu. Why are investors fleeing China right now? Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of noise around the... <laughs> The, uh, the politics out of China and how, um, you know, the growth story that people have enjoyed for the last decade is going to start um, uh, uh, decreasing. But, uh, you know, one of the things with these China ETFs, I mean, they still have a ton of assets and, uh, you know, it drops by double digit percent. Some folks will look at it as a buying opportunity. And then this year it's down another double digit percent. So I think there's just been you know, it's, it's been an important asset class. It's a uh, an important part of the global economy. And investors are kind of just gauging how far this thing's going to go south before the recovery starts. Right. Finally, I just got to get a quick update. You also run the Franklin Bitcoin ETF. So that's one of the 10 new ones that are out there. Nine, actually. How is it tracking Bitcoin? I, I see a respectable $4 billion in inflows for the nine new spot ETFs that have launched. That seems pretty good to me. Are, are you tracking well? That's what the viewers want to know about this right now. Uh, yeah, the, the funds are doing what they're supposed to do from a tracking perspective. Uh, that was one of the big unknowns in terms of, uh, you know, building out all the plumbing, so to speak, is, hey, this thing's going to own spot Bitcoin. They want the ETFs to uh, to track the price of Bitcoin. And that's exactly what they've all done so far. OK, terrific. Uh, we're going to have a lot more on international investing, what's going on with the flows and the Bitcoin ETFs coming up. ETF Edge at 1.15 p.m. Eastern time. And Dave is going to be joined by Mike Akins. He's the head of ETF Action. A lot of opinions uh, on his part on where ETFs are going. That's ETFEdge.CNBC.com. Scott, back to you. All right, Bob. Thank you. Appreciate it, Bob Pisani. Coming up, more ideas for your portfolio. A handful of bullish calls today on the transports. We will debate the best ways to play that group in just two minutes. We are back. I uh, want to hit some transports today because, Anastasia, we'll go to you first. Doing this because Union Pacific and Norfolk Southern got upgraded today to outperform over at Bernstein. What about this group? 
I really like these upgrades. I think they're very timely. When you look at the Dow Jones Transportation Index, it has largely been range-bound for the last two years. And the reason for that is because after the pandemic, we've accumulated these inventories and we then had to destock them. And nobody was restocking, so you didn't have to have to move more stuff. But today, we're on the other side of that. If I look at inventories, uh, we have destocked quite significantly. And if you look at the manufacturing gauges, they're sort of around 50. So that, to me, suggests that if we're going into this true soft landing economy and demand actually sustains and picks up, inflation moderates, you know, rates could also spur a demand pickup, you could have this restocking cycle. So we are going to have to move stuff again. And so when I look at the demand for trucking, for rails, for example, that has collapsed, it is now going through a bottoming process and we're starting to get some green shoots from the commentary from shippers and also they expect rates to go up as well. So I like picking up that sector here and if you look at the ETF like IYT, for example, mm -hmm. that's rails, that's freight, that's trucking, that's marine transportation. So if you think that the world is going to move more stuff, uh, that's a very timely call. Okay, uh, Jimmy, so if you want to get more stock specific, we mentioned uh, UNP in one of the calls today. So price target goes to 280 from 229. Uh, the firm calls it the best best France rail, rail franchise in the U.S. You own that one. Yeah, I do own it. I'm comfortable owning it. I take great comfort and agree with what you just said, Anastasia. The one thing that's interesting is the call that this is the best class one rail franchise in the U.S. I'd like to believe that, uh, but I need to see that proven uh, in the results. And here's why I'm saying that. The stock really languished for about a year and a half until Jim Vanna was uh, announced as the CEO last summer, and it promptly has risen 20% since then. But now trading at 21 times this year's earnings, that's a just a touch rich unless what Anastasia just said comes through. We're shipping goods again, and those earnings estimates are nicely beaten. Again, that's a show-me sort of story. J.B. Hunt, uh, Joey's yours. It got upgraded today. The trucker at uh, to buy it. This is at UBS. Price target to 234 from 205, says the company, quote, provides strong leverage to a freight cycle turn. March 16th, 2022, Federal Reserve first rate hike. That's the high for J.P. Uh, J.B. Hunt, been in a consolidation range ever since. This note cites the potential for a margin bottom, which I agree with. More importantly, understand something about individual stocks. Stocks that fall on strong volume tend to fall even more. Stocks that move higher on strong volume tend to even move higher than where they were. And that's the case of J.B. Hunt in the last several days. It's rallying strongly, and the volume is increasing significantly. I think it goes higher. Okay, coming up, we will go through more key earnings to watch this week. Mike Santoli, though, joins us first. He'll do that next. Welcome back. Our senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli, joins us now with his midday word. All right. We did it. We made new highs. Now what? Yeah, I mean, we did it. I think you can give credit to the to the S&P 500 for finally breaking uh, to this new high. It's two years and two weeks since it, since the prior one, uh, while also acknowledging that, uh, you know, there are soft spots. Maybe we didn't have 
enough of a, of a kind of a payback phase coming into this year just yet today. You know, a little favorable rotation, uh, in you know, back toward the majority of smaller stocks and cyclical stuff. I think you can also really welcome the fact that the grip of the bond market might have loosened just a little bit. You know, you didn't require a big drop in yields for every bit of upside. But, uh, you know, kind of open to, to, to both sides here, waiting to see what uh, kind of sentiment and positioning does. There has not been a really aggressive chase into the market to this point. I'm not sure that just a marginal new high is going to bring that. And I think that's something that you can uh, also kind of take a little heart in, too, because it's not as if people, you know, got uh, real overheated in, uh, in terms of the, uh, the greed zone, uh, at least not three weeks into the year. We'll see how we look in uh, just a couple hours from now when we see each other on Closing Bell. Mike, thanks. That's yep. Mike Santoli. Our senior markets commentator coming up. We'll give you your earnings setup for the big week ahead. Many names are on our list. We'll trade them next. We're going to rip through some earnings expectations this week from the committee. P&G, tomorrow morning before the bell, Jason Snipe. Yeah, so for me, um, stock has obviously been relatively flat. I think the, um, the real focus for me is on margin growth and, and seeing how they they're obviously have some innovative product solution changes. So let's see, that's, that's help with pricing. Let's see how that plays out in the quarter. ServiceNow, you get that one too. They report Wednesday. You, you own it. Yeah, ServiceNow has been a juggernaut, as you know. And uh, again, they've, they've made a couple of partnerships, one with uh, NVIDIA recently and, and, and uh, Amazon. So I, I like the AI catalyst. I think it continues to play well for the stock. Joey, Amex on Friday. You know, obviously we were just with uh, CEO Stephen Squarey out at the Amex golf uh, tournament. Quiet period, so he couldn't get specific on, on where things are. But you own the stock. What do you think? Phenomenal event. Stock looks technically incredibly strong. Caters to the affluent consumer who was remarkably resilient during the normalization process from the Federal Reserve and really was unaffected by rates rising. In fact, positively impacted by, by uh, capturing a higher savings rate. If there's one thing to watch for, watch for any credit deterioration that will challenge the 10% revenue growth target. Give me quickly Colgate, Palmolive, Jason Snipe, which reports on Friday of this week. Yeah, so Colgate, a little bit different story. I mean, the price action has been relatively strong for, for a staple. You know, it's up about 10% in the last three months. Again, inflationary costs are going to be a concern how freight and supply chains have worked out. All right, we'll do finals next. We have one of this country's top wealth advisors on with me today on Closing Bell. Cheryl Young is going to be right here on set with me at the Stock Exchange, so I look forward to that conversation. Keith Lerner of Truist, Chris Verone gives us the technical perspective on this market, where we go from here after these record highs, and Schwab's Kevin Gordon with his playbook as well. So I'll see you all 3 o'clock Eastern time. All right, Farmer Jim, what's your final trade? NXP Semiconductor. A couple of weeks ago, Mobileye really gave a question as to the strength of the automotive market. I think it's a lot stronger than Mobileye indicated, and NXP is the way to play it. Okay. Jason Snipe. Costco. Discretionary trends are improving. I really like this stock. Here. I was going to ask you about that earlier. This stock's up like 25 plus percent since yep. November 1st. Yeah. Stay with it. Stay with it. Stick with it. All right. Anastasia. Right there with Jim on semiconductors, you stick with it because this is the year we go from multiple expansion to actual revenue growth for the industry, so I'm sticking around for that. Joseph T. For my cyclical loving friend at the end of the desk there, City is the one name that oh. I actually think is breaking out. Thank you. Got your eye on that. Okay. See, this could be going somewhere. All right. We'll see you on Closing Bell. The exchange begins right now.
You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.